evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Mahoning Drive-In Theater, the largest single-screen drive-in in the United States. We're certainly glad you could be with us this evening. And don't forget the concession stand is open with all kinds of great things to eat and drink. Eighty-nine point three Mahoning Drive-In Radio. Your old friend Virgil back once again with my co-host Mark. Say hello, Mark. Hello. And uh, very happy Halloween to you guys as we roll into official spooky season, uh, which means, of course, the season for us is coming to an end. So we're going to talk about a mishmash of stuff today, as well as field some questions from our uh, our Patreon fans. Which, speaking of, Mark, why don't you tell the people about Patreon. For me, it is the way for us to stay in contact with you guys and really get a piece of the Mahoning in the off season. So if anybody hasn't heard us ramble about Patreon, it is something we came up with at the beginning of this season as uh, honestly an additional income stream, but also as a way to do a little bit more for the folks who wanted to you know, help us out. And it's a mix of things. Sometimes it is Patreon exclusive podcast episodes where we are a little looser in those episodes and we uh, field questions or topics or, or things suggested by the Patreon folks. Sometimes it's videos that we create. Sometimes those videos are us recording uh, celebrities who come to the theater giving their film introductions for people who missed it, or if they send us on-screen introductions, sometimes it's a video one of us will shoot just talking about something. All sorts of behind-the-scenes and, and film-centric stuff. We'll post old ads. I do this flashback series where I find old ads for the Mahoning dating back to the literally the weekend we opened and discuss you know the movies that were shown and the little facts about the movies and all this other stuff and it's just it's just a fun like value added extra thing that we do and there's no plans on slowing down in the off season you might think because the theater's closing that will shut down too but actually no we will actually have more time to uh, put into patreon in the off season we had planned to do a lot more during the season but we're all just busy nearly 24 7 running the place it was it was a little leaner than i had hoped it would be but once october 31st at 2 a.m rolls around we're gonna have a lot more time to put into patreon uh, in addition to patreon if, if you don't know how patreon works it's a subscription service where you, you put in your financial info and uh they once a month will deduct from whatever you choose as your income source um either 4.99 9.99 or 19.99 each of those each of those levels gives you different content. Um, each level up gives you all the content the previous level had, plus a little bit more. The top level is uh, Simplex, which has nothing to do with the disease and everything to do with our projector names. And that <laughs> is, I know, I swear, I had posted about Simplex on, on Facebook once, and we got some spam message saying, how to solve herpes herbally. It's like, at first I thought, what does this have to do with anything? And then somebody pointed out, well, Simplex, Simplex is the brand of projectors we have. E7 is the model number. Uh, our Simplex level at the highest, you get a, a discount for purchases made at the theater. We may see if we can work that out with our web store that's coming too. If we can get a discount on that, that would be kind of cool. And also you get free monthly screenings where we run rare things from the vault. And what we're planning to do in the off season is continue those free monthly screenings, but do that online screening rare video content um, electronically for those who are members so it's fun if you go to patreon.com forward slash mahoning drive-in you can find all the info and uh, participate or not if you choose it's also a way to hear this podcast i always post those as open to the public through the patreon page you can hear us through anchor.fm forward slash mahoning drive-in or spotify or apple podcasts or any number of sources but they we also just post them on the patreon page 
And it is. It's beyond fun. It started as, like you said, a a kind of side venture to what we do, an addition like the radio show, like the pre-show that we do on the lot, but but putting that out there to the world. And it's been insanely rewarding. The amount of love that we get for this podcast is is pretty overwhelming. It's one of those situations. We actually have international listeners to this podcast. It might only be one person in each of these other countries, but I see the breakdown and it's like, hello, Australia. That's awesome. <laughs> hello, Austria. Well, and the, the main thing that I hear is it's it's just, it's refreshing and rewarding to hear people talk about something that they're so passionate about and it crosses over with the audience. We have created a resurgence as far as the love of the drive-in and the culture and to have kind of a weekly tidbit that you can easily swallow in route to your job or during your workout or whatever it is, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. And it's something that, like Mark said, going into the off season, we got some really fun ideas as far as spreading the wings uh, with, with really the creativity in general. Patreon's just a kind of hub for us to uh, launch it, but there's a lot of coals in the fire and a lot of things uh, brewing for the 2022 season. So here's the place to hear it. Um, so I know we have some questions from our Patreon fan base, but why don't we talk a little bit uh, spooky, you know, since it is spooky season. Oh, yeah. We have a very heavy horror lineup throughout the whole entire year. But naturally, when we hit October, we try to go full steam with the horror stuff. So pretty much all we have left is our Tim Burton weekend, which uh, may be over by the time this hits your ears. And then our final weekend, which is uh, Richie's PCs with Adam's family and Casper on Friday, Janet and Jamie, which is the title of our Mischief Night event, which we're doing Psycho and Halloween 2. And of course, closing out our season with Halloween Night with D. Wallace, Cujo and the Howling. A lot of classics tossed in there. And Mark thought it would be a great topic to talk about some of our horror experiences, whether in the theater or growing up. And I certainly have some. Mark, I know you got some, that's for sure. I think my introduction to horror, I wasn't like a horror hound kid. I grew up in New Hampshire and uh, this would be, let's say, born in 74. So when I say grow up in the 70s, you're kind of there, but not completely aware of things. 70s into the 80s well into the eighties. And um, it, it was mostly TV where I would see that sort of stuff. Right. And, you know, I would, there was something channel 56 in Boston, WLVI had creature double feature. And it was a, it was like a horror host show minus a host. There was just this voice that would come on and introduce the movies, you know, over a, over the show intro or over like a looping piece of video. And they showed like the hammer stuff and some universal stuff and a lot of Godzilla and all that. So I was well steeped in monster movies and, the kind of horror you would show on a Saturday afternoon, you know, mostly aimed at kids. And it wasn't until a, I was a bit older that I was really like willingly watching scary stuff. But the one thing I'll start and then we can go back and forth. But one of the earliest memories I have of something just scaring the hell out of me was the ABC Saturday night movie. It would air. Uh, so the, the way the house was when I grew up, we had a big old house. And we, my, my family lived on the upper floor, which was like a full large apartment let's say and my mother's mother my grandmother lived on the ground floor 
And sometimes my parents would go out on the weekends and if they didn't have a babysitter come to sit with my sister and I, or, or just myself, we would just go downstairs with my grandmother or I would stay upstairs alone for a while and watch TV before I went downstairs for the rest of the night. And I would watch whatever was on, you know, as, as it got dark and then ABC would come on with the ABC Saturday night movie. And the, the host was Ernie Anderson and he was known, um, he's known now probably as the voice, the voice of ABC, you know, the love boat. That was Ernie Anderson. If you knew TV in the seventies into the early nineties, Ernie Anderson was the voice of like all the announcing on ABC. He's also the father of PT Anderson. He might be best known as that now. And wow, I didn't know that. Oh yeah. And early on, funny enough, he was a horror host in Cleveland. He was known as Goulardi. He was an extremely popular horror host in Cleveland. He also had a comedy team with Tim Conway before Tim Conway was famous. And sort of like Tim Conway went out to LA and got McHale's Navy and some work. And then eventually Ernie Anderson went out. They actually put out a few comedy albums that I have. Anyway, Ernie Anderson was the voice of ABC and it would be the ABC Saturday Night Movie. And it would be this, and you can find it on YouTube. Introductions to movies in the 70s and 80s on network TV was this huge fanfare. It really gave you this sense of excitement and then it was built, building up to something amazing you were gonna see. So I would watch it hoping it would be something cool and fun. It would be this huge fanfare. And then Ernie Anderson's voice would come on and it would say, it'd be this one voice saying, the ABC Saturday Night Movie, really upbeat and everything. And then Ernie Anderson's voice would come on and go, Tonight, a woman stalked in terror and it would scare the <laughs> shit out of me. And it would just be clips from whatever movie they were going to show. And uh, I, I was terrified by that. And I would like flip the channel as soon as I could. And in that day, it was you were of the age where if you got scared by something you saw on TV, the world of fantasy and reality would blur enough that suddenly you thought whatever it was scary on TV might be in the shadows in the next room. Now. Oh, yeah. The, the, nobody has entered the, 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 the domicile since the sun was up. You'd hear it. It wasn't that big a house. But at the same time, it's going to come out of the TV and kill me. <laughs> so, I, have, I have two memory, two TV terrifying memories, but I'll go with the one that's similar to that. Now, I'm mixing these up because I believe it was actually NBC that aired this. But I saw Prom Night when I was six years old on NBC. My understanding is that that movie aired on network TV within about six months of when it was in theaters back in 1980. I could be wrong, it might have it might have lapsed into 81, but I saw Prom Night on its network TV premiere on NBC. And it starts off with, it's a bunch of kids and they're playing, oh cool. Then one of the kids dies, <laughs> sort of at the hands of the other kids. Yeah. And I, it just, it traumatized me because I had never seen, you know, that was an era where everything was pretty squeaky clean on TV. And the idea that a kid would die in something yeah, you were watching. Out a window. Yeah. yeah. While, while playing. And it was, it was yeah. a place in the, in the broad daylight. I was just like, oh my God, this is horrifying. So for some reason, I kept watching it to the end of the movie. And um, I just remember it being really scary. Uh, you know, the, the, the sparkly masked black clad uh, disco killer with his shiny axe. It scared the hell out of me. And I don't know why I watched the whole thing. A lot of people don't like Prom Night now. I really like it partly because I have that memory of it as being a movie that that terrified me as a kid. And then when the killer is revealed, I remember like being really sad. Like most of <laughs> most of the time, horror movies don't really work on all your emotions because you're a grown up and you just want to see you know mayhem and see who's going to make it to the end. But as a kid, certain ones would actually work on my emotions. So so that was one. And and let me turn it over to you. And then I have another TV based one after that. Well, it's funny because, you know, growing up, I, I didn't start a horror fan, but I think you hit it on the nose. You kind of become a horror fan and start chasing this feeling that you got of 
absolute terror. And movies are responsible for really opening up my eyes to the unknown in general. But I grew up a uh, religious kid, going to CCD, getting my communion, all that stuff. And my father always told me growing up about his scariest experience in the movie theater with The Exorcist. He saw it down in the city and it was right by, I wish I knew the name of the theater, but it was right by the subway, the railroad track or whatever the case is. And literally the building would start to shake when uh, the train went by. And he said in this screening, people were passing out, people were having to leave. And the shaking of the theater came at like the perfect time. So it's just always burned into his brain. So my father, growing up, we used to go to the video store pretty much on a weekly basis. It was the routine to let the kids kind of go around, pick something that they wanted. My parents would pick something that they wanted and bang, we're kind of set for the night slash weekend. And traditionally, I would pick a lot of uh, safe fare, you know, kind of things that were for kids, still kind of weird, but, you know, things that were meant for children. And this particular night, I wish I remembered how old I was. I might have been 10. My father was like, let's get The Exorcist and let's watch it. I had my cousin over and I think he had this this thing where he's like, I'm going to scare the hell out of uh, Frankie, which is my cousin and kind of get a kick out of that. So we go home and my cousin is already terrified to watch this movie from the buildup and he will not enter the room as this movie is starting. And I'm watching it, you know, and as a kid, it's like, all right, starting as a little slow burn, what are we getting into? And then, you know, the meat and potatoes of that movie starts kicking in with the possession of Reagan and, it opened up my eyes to something that even though I had been, you know, pretty much being told this stuff on a weekly basis, God, the devil, blah, blah, blah. The idea of the devil taking over your body literally flipped me out um, to the point where like, I got angry at my father. How could you do this? You know, the, and the thing that gets me with that movie is, you know, it has this amazing based on true events lead in which as a kid you know you'll believe that as soon as that hits the uh hits the screen and and buy everything that's in that movie so i look back on that as kind of the shaping of knowing uh more about the world through movies but also being truly uh terrified at the idea of uh, something that a movie gave me. So that's got to be, I think, my number one. I did watch the movie, you know, like there were moments where I remember I'd go running into the other room where my cousin was and, you know, be trying to explain to him what's going on. And it's just, it's one of those things that I thank my father for doing, but at the same time, it's such a, such a crazy curveball to throw to a kid that's used to watching Garbage Pail Kids. <laughs> I think I saw The Exorcist for the first time with my father as well. Like he was my guide into so much. It's cinema. a rite of passage. And, yeah. and he wasn't a cinephile by any means. Like he he had books about movies though, which was unusual. He had this 
this book called the picture pictorial history of the talkies and it was this cool photo book of everything from the earliest sound films up to the early 70s but there was this again the boston tv stations those independent stations that always had a movie on every night at eight o'clock and then on the weekend afternoons they ran um they ran the exorcist as part of the movie loft which was this nightly monday through saturday i think maybe it was every day 8 p.m movie show and they had all these viewer discretion is advised and they really built it up too like you know this is the shocking thing and the, and the clips they showed were really scary but i watched oh, yeah. it with him so it was edited for tv it was pretty sanitized it wasn't until video probably several years later when i was a teen that i saw it uncut but it was pretty darn scary and i finally saw it in the theater when they re-released it as the version you've never seen that director's cut and when that came out on DVD, there was a commentary with William Peter Blatty, who'd written the book that the film was based on. And it's a fascinating, very creepy commentary. Just his voice is creepy. And he's, he was probably playing it up a little bit too, but he talks about the, the case that it was based on. And he said one thing in there that I've never forgotten. And he said that there are people who have talked to him about the movie, The Exorcist, who felt that there was evil woven into the fabric of the film. Like by watching the film, you were exposing yourself to evil. And that that gets back to what I was saying earlier about when you're younger and you're impressionable and you're watching these things and you feel like somehow this fake thing on the other side of a, of a you know, a piece of furniture with glass in the front of it that lights up is going to come out and get you. It was and the realest thing, you know, like, like that such still. a reality check of like, oh, my God, you know, like there is this unknown terror, you know, that it's it's one of those movies that i think it's it's probably the easiest one to go to as far as you know truly terrifying and i think that's the reason why is it just opens up your eyes to the total unknown and that's horrifying <laughs> over over the years i've heard people who who don't like the exorcist or think it's silly or or they don't get into it and i i think having a religious background has always helped with that movie I think if you oh, yeah. think all of the religious tenets that are discussed in it are, are ridiculous or fake, then you might have less of an impact. But oh, yeah. to me, it's just good filmmaking. Like I can never see how people just totally dismiss that film. Yeah, it's incredibly well done. And, you know, again, I think as far as horror goes, it's it's a masterpiece. And, I, and for me, it started this again kind of chasing the high situation That's exactly what it is every time we went to the video store after that it was let me look in the horror section let me see what i can find it started me going down this uh rabbit hole of like that 80s horror madness you know in that era when all those you know now classics were being made i, I just wasn't into it so i remember again going back to those nights my parents would go out a babysitter coming home or coming to my house fresh from seeing uh, Friday the 13th part three in the theater. So she must have shown up at my door at six, uh, eight or nine o'clock as my parents were leaving. And I remember her thing, saying that the movie was funny. Like I remember her taking the 3D glasses, <laughs> she ripped the 3D glasses in half and threw them out. And I was like, oh, I want to keep those because, you know, I was a pack rat and a collector and all that. But uh, I remember her laughing, you know, oh, it was so stupid, you know, somebody such and such happens and then they live and such and such happens and i'm just thinking how can you laugh at something as terrifying as that film because I had seen the tv ads for it and it looked scary as hell to me and i always remember a line from that where they were saying but these are jason's woods and i lived near woods and i thought about that all the time if i was in the woods or near the woods out there. Is there a maniac out there who's gonna kill me <laughs> So another one for me, uh, TV related again, that really disturbed me at the time. And you watch it now and it really isn't that disturbing. But 
I stayed up really late one night and I think I've done the research and it might've been something like midnight or 2 AM. And this, you know, and this would have been when I was probably in like second grade. And when you're that young, you know, your bedtime is usually what, nine o'clock or something for most kids. I don't know what it is now, but back then that seemed to be roughly, I think I remember talking my parents into letting me go to bed at nine because that's, you know, I wanted to get, at least get a taste of primetime TV before I had to go to sleep. Like, right. but all the shows are on at eight. So I, I usually could make it till nine. Um, so it was one that my mother was asleep on the couch in the same room we had the TV. I was in a chair opposite that. And uh, it was WPIX out of New York, which is a great channel for in another independent station for movies. And they had the, the late show or the late, late show. And it was William Castle's I Saw What You Did from the early 60s, Ooh, yeah. which is the basic story of this movie is a couple of teenage girls are having a sleepover. Their parents aren't there. And they just start pranking people say, by saying, I saw what you did and then I know who you are. And they pick the wrong person to do that to. They call up John Ireland, who has just murdered Joan Crawford. And he figures somebody does, he figure he takes the call as read. Oh my God, somebody knows that I just killed this woman and I need to find them. So the movie is basically about an adult male hunting down and trying to kill little kids who are home alone. And again, the concept that an adult would try to kill a kid was completely foreign to me. And, and terrifying. And I, I'm in I'm in our house, you know, the front door downstairs is locked. The door to our upstairs is locked. Both of my parents are in the house, albeit asleep. But that movie worked on me so much to the degree that I felt like I was home alone because my parents were not, you know, awake and, and <laughs> around. And the idea that this guy at night was trying to get into a house and kill these kids, it was just like, it was like I was sucked into the movie. It just scared the hell out of me. And I just remember being a shambles after that. <laughs> and somehow having to turn off the lights and go to my bed was terrifying. Because again, once the light goes out, all the creatures come out of that room that's so tiny and small and has nothing in it with the lights on. <laughs> Suddenly the creatures are going are gonna to just seep out of the walls or something. So years, years later, I found I saw what you did. I bought it as soon as it hit DVD and I watched it. And it's way lighter in tone than I remembered. But uh, I guess, you know, it's one of those things where if you're at the right age and you can put yourself in the right mindset, it, it totally worked on me as a little kid. That's the thing. I think it's it's really a timing situation where if, in my case, if you're lucky enough to be exposed to some of this uh, alternative content, it can really uh, send you down as a film lover down a crazy rabbit hole of of discovery. And we talked about this the other day. We were having our, our weekly managers meeting and the first few minutes we were talking about Halloween kills. And then we started talking about horror movies. And at one point I said, we're doing a podcast now. You realize this <laughs> horror movies it is chasing that thrill. You, you see a few early on that scare you and you want to get scared again. But the problem is the more you see, the more you get used to the tropes and you just get used to it. And I mean, I don't know when the last time I saw a horror movie that scared me was. I can see movies that disturb me. I think that's maybe what I go for now. Something that kind of lingers with you and makes you yeah. think or kind of creeps you out. That I still get once in a while. But horror is one of the few, uh, I was going to say franchises. Horror is one of the few genres where you cannot like the majority of what you see, but you keep watching because, or or moreover, you horror movies theoretically are supposed to be scary. For most of us, they really are not. We love them for the trappings, for the tropes, for the vibe, for the soundtrack, for the lighting, for the mood they set. They don't scare us, but we still watch them anyway. Now, you can't apply that to comedy. I don't think there are a lot of people who endlessly watch comedies and, and don't laugh at them, but still think they're good uh, or, or anything like that. Horror seems to me, in my mind, to be the one genre where 
99% of them cannot work for you, but you still keep watching them anyway. I don't know the last horror movie that scared me, honestly. And I don't know that I ever had a theatrical experience where a horror movie scared me. Disturbed me, yes. It Follows, I thought was pretty disturbing and creepy. That might've been the last one that I saw in the theater that really worked on me in a, in a big way and gave me the goosebumps at certain moments. Mostly they tend to re rely on jump scares, which I don't like. To me, a jump scare is illegitimate because it's, it's, a, it's a physical nervous system reaction. It makes you jump because there was a loud noise you weren't expecting or somebody jumps out. It doesn't mean it's scary, it means your body works. It's like if I tickle you and you laugh, it wasn't because it was funny, it's your body responding to a stimulus. So I'm not a fan of jump scares. So when a horror movie can come up with something that is just unsettling, like there's a moment in Insidious, if you know what I mean. Yes. Um, there's that moment in Insidious, which is, it just made my blood run cold and my heart stop. And it was a sort of a jump scare, but not quite. And there's a moment in Exorcist 3 that does that. Uh, Exorcist 3, which I think is a pretty good movie that I saw in the theater when it came out. Um, Exorcist 2, it has its fans. I know Andy's a big fan of Exorcist 2. Oh, yeah. To me, it's just bad with kind of a cool soundtrack. But um, <laughs> once in a while, I'll see something that just it just shivers the spine. And I give mega points to a film that'll do that um, or, or just be uncomfortable without being, you know, overtly gross. I mean, gore has its place and gory can be fun and cool. But I don't I, I need a little more than that most of the time. Yeah. So, so yeah. Uh, do you have any other memories of specific films or, or, or film watching experiences that uh, burn themselves into your brain or nerves? I mean, I got a few. The certainly, I love the fact that we're the home of Camp Blood and lean into the Friday the Thirteenth franchise because I'll never forget seeing that for the first time. I guess it was USA would do these on Friday the Thirteenth. They'd run a marathon after hours. And uh, happened to work out the Friday the 13th fell on a weekend. I was at my grandmother's house again with my cousin Frankie. And I decided to stay up all night and try to watch this slasher movie for the franchise for the first time. And it freaked me out. The setting of my, my grandmother's house late at night by myself. Again, it kind of set that mode of like, there is somebody outside there. This guy definitely is out there. And that forever stuck with me. Seeing the, the guy in the wheelchair get the hatchet through the face. I'll never forget that. It certainly burned into my brain. But sometimes you said it, it's, it's these weird moments, you know, of, of kind of eye opening. I remember one summer watching fire in the sky which we've talked about i think it, maybe not on this podcast but definitely at the uh fire in the sky screening that we did last year and that movie totally flipped out my world again the eye-opening thought of there might be aliens out there there might we might not be alone and they time, might not be et yeah that they might literally run a needle into your eye it I had a paper route at the time and I want to say I was 12 and I went to my mother uh, the week after seeing that movie, um, which I saw in the daylight. It was on HBO during the day and I just decided to sit there and watch the whole entire thing while my friends played outside and I begged her. I said, please do not make me work this job and be out in the dark because <laughs> I, I could have sworn I was going to get swept up in those early morning hours and probed. <laughs> For me, similar to that, there was a TV movie from the 70s called The UFO Incident, and it was about Betty and Barney Hill, which is this New Hampshire couple 
who experienced missing time and then went under hypnosis and recounted this alien abduction story. And it had James Earl Jones and Estelle Parsons in it. And again, this was one of those Channel 56 eight o'clock movies that I watched with my father. And because it had taken place in New Hampshire, it was even scarier. So I was watching this thing and they recount their memory. And if you watch it now, it's probably very, very innocuous, but it's nighttime. They pull the car over, their headlights strike this alien standing there. And then it's them, you know, being probed and all that stuff. But it was just terrifying. And it made me think, you know, when I was driving on or being driven on these country New Hampshire back roads after that at night, it's like, what if the wrong right? That's one of the, the, the things that has always terrified me. It's like an image that will give me goosebumps is the idea of suddenly there's something in my headlights, whether it's a yeah. Bigfoot or a guy standing there. There's a moment in the Alias. movie, The Sentinel from the 70s. Did you ever see that? Yes. Oh, my God. That's a good flick. I'd love us to run that at some point. There's this yeah. this moment where this woman is walking through this old creepy house and her in a, that's in the dark. The power's gone out or something. And her flashlight hits the like semi-decomposed sort of zombified body of her father standing there staring at her. And it was freaky as hell. And I've always remembered that. And that's always been something that when I dwell on it in my mind, it gives me goosebumps. So anything just like showing up in a beam of light. <laughs> so be it aliens yeah. or Bigfoot or, or an old dead guy. But um, yeah, I saw fire in the sky in the theater when it came out. I remember that. And, it's a uh, gem, you know, and obviously showing it on the big screen last year, it holds up like crazy. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, I'm just a sucker for the based on true events. I remember, I think the only experience in a theater would be Blair Witch. I remember when I went in to see Blair Witch, I was totally in for this is based on found footage. That was this a is... brilliant marketing campaign. Yes. And it really worked on me because I remember leaving that theater after, you know, seeing that guy facing the wall of the pure the terror. It, it worked. It really worked on me and my friends. It was the perfect age, I guess, for me to uh, to have experienced that in the theater. The marketing worked on me like crazy. I went to see that with a friend of mine in Boston when it was in really, really limited release. And it was like one of those things where you had to take a, two buses and a, a rickshaw to get to the theater where it was. <laughs> you had to work for it in those days. Or if you had a car, you just drove there and parked. And the woman, middle-aged, I guess, woman sitting next to us, when the movie, the lights came up, she turned to us and she said, did that really happen? Because they so had played it as though it was real and yeah. shooting it, you know, bless and curse that movie forever forgiving as the found footage genre, but it made it feel like it was real. It was people you'd never seen before. So it wasn't like it was Tom Cruise in this movie to give you an out as far as the reality of it. Uh, and it was, they had the wanted posters set up and it was just, yeah. it was really totally, totally effective. And you know, I, I remember like little uh, moments of movies that, you know, really stuck with us when we were kids. I remember Zelda from um, uh, oh, Pet God. Cemetery would we that scarred us as kids. And my sister used to do that to terrorize us. She used oh, to do the voice and oh God, yeah. I saw that in the theater with my mother, funny enough. I think 89, right? I think I was just too young to see it by myself. So she was willing to come with me and we saw it opening night. And that was a movie that was really scary and really disturbing as I was watching it. And a few yeah. years ago, the Alamo and Yonkers did a Stephen King triple feature and they ran on film. They ran Cujo, Pet Cemetery, and Cat's Eye. Yes, they were animal themed films. Yes. And I was so surprised because I had seen Cujo before and wasn't a big fan. I had seen Cat's Eye and didn't think it was, it was okay, but whatever. And, and Pet Cemetery, I remember it was being great. And what was wild for me, Pet Cemetery fared 
fared the worst of the three watching them again with older eyes. Crazy. Um, it, it seems much cheesier to me than it did originally. Um, Cujo was just great. And I'm not just saying that because we're hoping people will pay to come see it in a week. Cujo was really <laughs> solid. And yeah. uh, Cat's Eye was way better than I expected or way better than I remembered. It was intentionally funny. And it was an anthology movie if you've never seen it. And the stories were really good and intense. And uh, it was cool that they had these little references to other Stephen King movies in there, and uh, including Cujo. And Pet Cemetery just, it didn't hold up for me, surprisingly. Uh, I still say it's better than that remake was uh, and the sequel. <laughs> uh, but it was it was weird. It was like it was really surprising. Like, wow, this just doesn't because I went in thinking, oh, boy, I remember how scary this was. And I had it on tape illicitly from the video store. And yeah. it always worked until recently. But yeah, Pet Cemetery, uh, I, I give high props to what that did to me when I first saw it when it was in the theater. Oh, hell yeah. And sometimes it's the littlest thing that freaks you out. I have a great memory. It has nothing to do with horror movies, but it is a, a great scare moment when I was a kid. Do you remember the story of three men and a little baby with? Um, oh, yes. With a three men and a baby. Yeah. So the story that I heard and we had this thing, we rented it to see if we could find it. The story that I heard was that there was a ghost in the background and it was of a boy who had died in the house that they were shooting in and going into it we i remember going to the video store asking for this movie getting it bringing it home finding that scene and being shivering to my core like so scared when we did this kind of slow-mo frame by frame as as we pass and see this image in the window Oh my God. I it's remember terrifying it, if you go on with that so mindset scary. because there yeah. is something there. <laughs> yes. And the best thing is, I think the week later, um, Oprah, my mom was watching Oprah and they were talking about it, about how it was just a, an old standee of <laughs> Ted Danson in a top <laughs> Ted Danson, yes. So, but man, that worked on me and is one of those things that just like, oh, it, for me, it was like the Bigfoot footage. The, like what it must have been like for people at the Bigfoot footage. <laughs> well, speaking I'm just of like, Bigfoot, oh God, there it is. It, it, two things. First of all, I remember that happening and I remember Entertainment Weekly publishing a, a still of it and explaining what it was and that it was this standee. And it's like, it wasn't a haunted apartment. They shot that in a soundstage. It's just, but, but you know, if anybody wanted to come up with a great reason for people to go and start renting and buying that. Hey, movie, it worked. It brilliant. Got, we would have never wanted to see that movie if it weren't for that. It reminds <laughs> me of, of the story about there's a moment in the wizard of Oz where allegedly yes. somebody hanging from a noose yep. in the background. We did that. Definitely. And uh, it, it, if you have that in your head, you can buy it. And in reality, it's like a bird or something that was on the set. But the, the, right. it was supposed to be like a stagehand or a munchkin or somebody that, like any urban legend or rumor, you know, on the playground, it evolves over the years. But it was supposed it to be somebody. The more you talk about it. <laughs> and it's just like, first of all, how would somebody not have seen that before they said action? <laughs> and second of all, on the giant screen, you think that would have been noticeable over the years. Speaking of Bigfoot, Bigfoot was one of those things when I was a kid. I grew up with the Leonard Nimoy hosted show In Search Ooh, Of that was produced of. in the 70s yeah. into the early 80s. It was syndicated in one of the Boston stations, Channel 4 WBZ. They used to run it like Saturday afternoons, Sunday afternoons, right around the time I'd be watching those horror movies and stuff. And it's cool. I have it on DVD now. There's a company called VEI in Canada that released the entire series that are remastered at a really good price and it's fascinating because some of it is overtly creepy some of it is you know goofy and silly some of it's about you know can we communicate with plants but <laughs> that's like i think actually the first episode 
the uh, the Bigfoot episodes are great. And there, I, there's something I saw on Channel 4. Now, it could have been one of the many Bigfoot documentaries of the era. I always remembered it as a long episode of In Search Of, but it probably wasn't. But there was this sequence where these people were uh, on an expedition somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, camping, hunting, whatever. And it was, you know, some some white guys and Native American guides and all that, you know, set in a contemporary time. But it was a sequence where allegedly Sasquatches attacked their cabin. So it was sort of day for night, pretty dark in the woods. There was this, you know, rustic cabin and all these crazy, scary Bigfoot screams and just like rocks coming out of nowhere, just pummeling this place. And it was, and again, it was allegedly it really happened. So it was another one of those things that always made me a little edgy when I was out in nature or in the woods. Yeah. Um, am I going to get taken by Bigfoot? Last weekend, <laughs> Val and I were in the Catskills and we were driving a lot of really rural, beautiful roads. And I kept saying, I just want to see something. I want to see a bear. We did see a bear briefly. I want to see a bear. I want to see a Bigfoot. I, he doesn't have to even wave. I just want to see a Bigfoot like somewhere. <laughs> And when I literally was in like the Pacific Northwest on a cross country trip years and years ago, that's what I kept saying to my friends who I was with. I just kept looking out the out the windows into the woods. I just want to see a Bigfoot. <laughs> he doesn't even have to look at me. He doesn't have to meet my eye, my gaze. But that was the thing when I was a kid. They, the in search of those speculation shows about UFOs and the paranormal and ghosts and the Amityville horror. Oh my God! I saw the Amityville horror on TV when I was a kid, and that came out in what seventy nine. Yeah. So this would have been like probably right when it was first hitting TV broadcasts. I watched it with my older cousins and it was the most terrifying thing ever. Now that's a movie a lot of people think is silly and laughable now, but I I still like it because I remember how much it scared me as a kid. The idea that there was this weird pair of glowing eyes outside a window and the walls would bleed and that that get out voice still makes my blood run cold and gives me goosebumps. <laughs> and the idea even now the idea that I could be anywhere in a house in the middle of the day and that voice might pop up and say that. It's pretty terrifying. I got no qualms with getting out. I will I will, <laughs> the window, I will go up the chimney. I'll spider walk backwards down the stairs. I'm out of that house forever. It's I'm yours. Out. Thank you. Sold. <laughs> yours. Amityville. That was such a phenomenon in its day. And I later read the book and it was scary as hell too. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's all been pretty heavily debunked at this point, but it doesn't mean it's not a good story. You know what would be great? We want to hear your guys' stories of your childhood and being freaked out. Mark, why don't you tell them we've been doing this really fun addition to the show where you guys can call in and leave a voice message for us. And they've been going really, really well. We love hearing from you guys. And this is a really fun topic. I feel like everybody has these moments from their childhood. So feel free, Mark, why don't you give them the info so they can uh, give us a ring? So if on the internet, you go to anchor.fm forward slash Mahoning drive-in, you can leave a voice message. There's a button that says message. And if you click on that, it will uh, pop up with a little button to hit record. And you only can record about 59, 60 seconds at a time. So if you keep your eye on the counter and you want to split it up into multiple messages, I will cut those together into one big long one. So no, no worries about that. And yeah, we would love to hear from you in general, any kind of drive-in memories, any kind of talk about the drive-in you currently go to, you used to go to wacky stories, memorable stories, heartwarming stories, anything like that. But in this case, if you want to tell us, it doesn't even have to do with the drive-in. What are some movies that scared you as a kid? 
or as an adult, what are some movies that scared you or memorable, scary experiences? Sometimes you have a story of somebody who goes to see a movie and somebody pranks them at just the right time, or like your father's <laughs> story of the theater shaking. The only way it would be better is if it was he was watching Earthquake, but the theater yeah. shaking during The Exorcist, that's just, oh boy, yeah. that's amazing. So yeah, please Absolutely. leave us a message and we will include them in uh, the next episode. Now, all on one super horror showcase, over four and a half hours of non-stop, all-scare terror, starring Christopher Lee, Lex Barker, John Ashley, and the all-dead inhuman creatures from the tombs of doom, Chiller Carnival of Blood. Go to see Chiller Carnival of Blood in super creature color, rated GP. Yeah, speaking of hearing from the fans, why don't we jump into some uh, fan questions? Absolutely. So we usually save these for the Patreon shows, but let me give you a little taste of what this is like. So I'm just going to read these as we have them here, even if they may be uh, redundant, because you, if you're not a Patreon member, you haven't heard these questions. From John Connolly, no relation to the man who was shot alongside JFK. What <laughs> dream title that y'all haven't gotten around to showing yet, but be it for rights issues, difficulty, finding prints or whatever. So what's a dream title we haven't played? We always say Star Wars out of the gate. Yeah, We would love to play Star Wars, any of the Star Wars films, but we can't. Um, Lucas has forever had a, a shutdown on those unless you're playing the special editions under very, very you know, rare allowable circumstances. We just can't play those. In that same vein, Willow, we can't play Willow because it's a Lucasfilms title and it's just not available. I want to see Man Mardigan up on that big screen. Kara, I want to see it all. Certain, we talked about it last week. I don't know if that was a Patreon thing, but the Poseidon Adventure. That is forever a, a title that I will go after and ask every film collector that we come in contact with, do you have this movie? Uh, because infamously, the studio does not have any existing prints. And we love that movie, Borgnine. <laughs> if you haven't, so we, we shouldn't assume everybody listens to every episode, but uh, without being redundant, <laughs> we've joked for a few weeks now because our friend Rick at the uh, the Beacon Diner restaurant just up the street, has. we were talking about Ernest Lives, which we just had as an Ernest uh, P. Worrell, Jim Varney double feature of Ernest movies. And he said, Ernest Lives, you're going to show some Ernest Borgnine movies. And we, he jokingly. <laughs> He's like, he made a lot of good films. And we're like, you know, he did. And then we started joking that it was going to be called Borg Nine. And it would be a nine, a three night, nine film Ernest Borgnine retrospective. And it ain't hard to fill nine slots with good Ernest Borgnine films. Yeah, he's got a, he's got a ton, you know, I, I, I'm surprised. Every time we wind up showing one, it's like we've crossed one off the, off that list of nine. We showed the black hole. That's right. one. We're going to get to our personal Borg Nine. <laughs> <laughs> Leave us a message. What are your Borg nine? <laughs> um, I would love to see uh, my favorite movie ever, Cannonball Run, on our screen. Yes. Uh, prints, rights are a little weird. Prints are really hard to come by, but there is a print that I saw at the Alamo in Brooklyn a year, a couple of years ago that had uh, like Dutch subtitles or something on it. So it came from overseas, but it does exist on film. I don't know. Rights are weird. It was like released by Fox, but also owned that, by Golden That's Harvest. when it gets, you know, when there's no prints for us, it becomes a situation where it's like, ah, well, we might not ever be able to show this. But the rights thing makes it even harder because then we really can't show it. There's literally not an option to do so. So it creates this, uh, you know. Some rights holders are in infamously um, pricey 
uh, the the early American international pictures, AIP films, like I was a teenage werewolf, I was a teenage Frankenstein, that stuff. Um, the rights holder for those allegedly has always wanted to charge just more than anybody really could. It wouldn't be financially viable if you had to pay a grand or two to show a film. You might not make that back to do a show, let alone with us. You know, you want to show two generally. The Toho films, the Toho Godzillas for the longest time were very, very expensive to run. Those oh, yeah. hardly anybody did. There's a few that have slipped through the cracks that are owned by Sony and things like that. Where rights here are Sony, so we can do that. And for me personally, the Russ Meyer movies, I would love to see some yes. of those. I mean, they're they're not PC anymore, but um, a lot of his stuff is just, if there are prints, the rights holders, again, from my understanding, charge quite a bit and it just makes it hard to justify it, taking a chance on something like that. Yeah, that's the thing. It's It can be such a gamble and just not make sense to run it. Two that have been on the calendar and we haven't been able to do, Hellraiser. Hellraiser right now has some licensing rights tie-ups where Hellraiser's not showable, but that would crush on the Mahoning screen. And the early Peter Jackson stuff. We were oh. talking about trying to do the early Peter Jackson stuff because we love it. And there's also some sort of tie up with the rights with the early Jackson titles that we would want to play. I think the last I heard he was working on like big time restorations of those. So they were out of. That's what I assumed. And I hope it's not a situation where it's like he doesn't want 35 prints to be screened and, you know, only the restorations. But I don't know if people know that, but some some directors are like that. Uh, William Friedkin, speaking of The Exorcist. We ran The Exorcist from a Blu-ray a few years ago because he does not want prints run. He doesn't want potentially faded or cut or damaged prints running. He wants the film to look the way he wants it to look. Um, I saw a, a DCP of Sorcerer, uh, which is a great movie that nobody talks about, at the Alamo Draft House in Yonkers a few years ago. And again, that was DCP. I know our friend Frank Henenlotter, director of Basket Case and Brain yes. Image and Frankenhooker, only wants digital screenings. Uh, which is why when we read Basket Case not long ago, even though prints were available to us, it wound up being digital. Yeah. Same thing with Frankenhooker. That happens, I mean, more times than not, we're blessed that we're able to at least uncover the rights. Getting to the print sometimes is a little bit deeper of a dig, but at least we know, hey, this this film is available to screen somewhere, you know? And the longer that I'm in this biz too, you know, I'm finding a lot of, what I call public domain titles were just kind of lost in the mix titles. These titles that people just really aren't looking at or going after or whatever the case is, but there's so many out there. There's a, a ton of amazing public domain titles. What was the one that we played with Arch Hall? The Sadist. I know when we played that for maybe Weekend of Terror last year or something like that, but that's a great PD title. And sometimes we get lucky with that, where we'll actually have a print of uh, an amazing film that doesn't cost anything to license. So that's just a, a rare blessing. I did a, a horror host show for many years, and that was that's all we had to work with because we had no money. So it was all public domain horror or cult or weird titles. And we yeah. got through, again, as best that we could verify that these were truly public domain. We got through 100 plus episodes of that show. So there's a lot out there. It just sometimes it's so overplayed because everybody can run it. They do. Then again, sometimes that makes a classic. Like, I don't know if Night of the Living Dead was would be as big a classic if it wasn't public domain and it couldn't have been screened as much as it was over the Everywhere. years. I mean, I think it's not public domain anymore. I think they did find a way to retain the rights, 
Well, that was a great, great question. I love these hits from the fan base because it really does, it creates this extension of the show, you know, the, the fans that are so um, invested in the preservation of our culture and getting into what we do, it really does make you part of the conversation. It's pretty awesome. Mr. Projectionist, stop the show. Here's great news you ought to know. We've just got a shipment of taste thrill treats, all tip-top quality and delicious eats. There are hot dogs and popcorn and candy galore. There are soft drinks and coffee and a whole lot more. So direct your steps to our refreshment stand to enjoy the finest snacks in all the land. Well, surprise, surprise, guys. We got the king in the house. Jeff, say hi to the folks. Hi, folks. How are you doing this afternoon? Super good to have you. We're we're chatting about some spooky stuff, being that Halloween is right around the corner. This will likely be our Halloween episode. And we we are in the middle of answering some fan questions, but we just jumped off the topic of scary experiences with films as a kid. Do you have anything that sticks out to you, a, a choice memory of a film that just flipped you out? Well, you guys know the story, and maybe um, maybe some of the folks out there don't. The first film that really scared me was Carrie. Oh, yeah. That was the first one that I saw that, you know, I had seen other horror films, but they didn't make me jump or anything like that. Right. But Carrie, when that hand comes up out of the grave at the end, and I remember because I was sitting towards the back, everybody jumped. I mean, not just me. I mean, everybody jumped. Uh, it was it was incredible to see that. I'm glad I wasn't sitting closer up front or something like that because man, that whole audience just went, bam, they shot out of their seats. That was that was intense. That was yeah, intense. we we played Carrie um, at yeah. the theater. And uh, Mark, why don't you tell that? We watched it and had the perfect experience with Jess. <laughs> okay, so uh, if, if you if you know Jess or if you don't know Jess, our, our longest running employee other than Jeff at the theater, and she's not into scary movies at all, but somehow we convinced her to sit outside the snack bar and watch Carrie, and she gets really into it and animated, and she's like talking to the screen. I mean, not loud that everybody would hear, but she's just like, oh, don't go in there. Oh, no, no. And she was just like, she was aggressively rooting for Carrie to kill her mother by the end of the film, which was which was a lovely, touching thing to see. But <laughs> what I wound up doing was it was Jess and somebody was sitting on either side of her outside and I stood behind her just to watch her and see the screen at the same time. And, and I knew what was coming. I knew that moment was coming. So I wanted to be there for it. And it was <laughs> it was amazing. So after that, <laughs> I invited her. A bunch of us when Halloween 2018 came out, we invite we all said, hey, let's a bunch of us go and see that at the, at the indoor theater up the street. And uh, we convinced Jess to come along. And it was one of the most entertaining theater experiences I've ever had, especially at a horror movie, because she was just so into it. And I always say, I want to see a horror movie with somebody who gets scared. And I want to see a comedy with somebody who laughs a lot. So it's great. So after that happened, she would, you know, she had gone out the other end and she had a great time because it's like a thrill ride. That's why we go to see these things. And we made a, a, a pact that we would go and see the new one together when it came out, which at the time we thought was going to be, you know, two years ago now. But I just talked to her the other day before we started our manager's meeting and we we're going to go see Halloween Kills together with whoever else can come. Because again, I want to watch Jess react to Michael Myers 
<laughs> just reducing the population of Haddonfield. Maybe a That's Patreon great. exclusive. We'll get Jess to review <laughs> Halloween Kills. <laughs> it's funny because this isn't a plug for our one of our last shows, but we were talking about movies that really stuck with you as a kid. I love Friday the 13th for that story I told about watching it at my grandmother's house by myself late night. I remember one Halloween, you know, it's every kid goes through this where they feel like they're too old to go out trick or treating. One of those years I decided to stay home and I was just going to watch, you know, horror movies and give out candy. And Halloween two is one of those movies that really hit me at the right time. I'll never forget the nurse getting dunked in the boiling water and her face getting, you know, all mangled out. And the fact that we get to play that on Mischief Night this year. And a lot of people ask, why aren't you playing Halloween 1? Everybody's playing Halloween 1. And to be honest, Halloween 2, that's my jam. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. Uh, But why don't we jump back into uh, some of the questions? We got anything else from the fans? Oh, we have so much. Albert Mariotti says, if you were to write and direct a movie that takes place at the drive-in, what would it be about? That's a wow. funny question because I think two of the three of us have attempted doing that once. And recently we got an email with a full length feature script from someone inspired by our our issue with the solar company and the Joe Bob Jamboree in which Joe Bob and Darcy saved the drive-in from uh, not only a developer, but also uh, demons and vampires and monsters that come up out of the mouth of hell in the middle of the drive-in. So uh, somebody's already started doing it. <laughs> And it's wild to read a script that you are in. Virgil and I are, are named in this script. And as somebody who's clearly never met us, just only probably based on a video they saw of us online. And it's just, it's so funny to see yourself saying words that, I don't know, it's it's wild. So, <laughs> so I years ago, I did come up with an idea for a film set at a drive-in. My idea was, it's a, it's a drive-in that's down on its luck. This it's set. It's called Drive-In 77, would be. And it was a drive-in that was down on its luck. And, and the uh, these local kids who love hanging out there and watching goofy movies want to help save the drive-in. So they, their plan is to break into the local hoity-toity indoor theater, steal a print of Star Wars before the night before it opens so that the drive-in can have it and run it and make a lot of money. That was my idea. I had, I don't know if I, I think it might be a special feature on the, the documentary DVD, but I had a script called Ironically at the Drive-In that I wrote in college that strangely enough is kind of similar to Mark's where a down on its luck drive-in gets threatened to be closed down when a big multiplex moves in right down the road, which was kind of the fate of the Bucks County twin. And this ragtag group of buddies kind of come up with ways to sabotage the shows at the indoor theater for the the gain of the drive-in movie theater. And there's some parts of that script that are really, really great relationship stuff, things like that. But it was also at a time when I was really into hangout movies and, you know, movies that really just kind of had these these fun, funny moments. But I talked to Andy, gosh, it might have been Sunday, so only a couple of days ago, about a loose short that I worked on last year. It might have even been two years ago that takes place at the Mahoning. And it's, we're putting on a big horror event as we do. And one by one, the crew starts to get killed off in creative ways at the theater. 
you know, projectionist gets hung up by 35 millimeter film. Uh, one of the crew in the concession stand gets dipped into the fryer. You know, somebody gets run over by the lawnmower. Really like, you know, kind of slashery stuff. But the hook for this script, which I think after talking to Andy, it might be really fun as like a comic book just to kind of rev up the engine as something that might be able to be shot. But the hook is, I read a story years ago, and Jeff, I, I'm pretty sure I shared this with you. Teenagers were going to the drive-in back in the day. One of the friends is in the trunk of the car. They pull into the drive-in, and somebody comes up revving behind them and smashes into the car. Engine catches on fire. They can't get the kid out of the trunk, and he burns alive. So this Ooh. this... This turn in the movie is that very much like you let my boy drown in Friday the 13th. It's you let my boy burn. <laughs> you couldn't save my boy years ago. All these ideas are copyright 2021. Version. Yes, yes. Because these are going to happen. But it, I would say that's that I think would be something that I would love to see through to fruition because it's it's more up our alley, I think, than what my original concept of at the drive-in would be. This would be just a pure kind of excuse for some killer kills, which is what I look for in horror movies. <laughs> so, <laughs> Right. <laughs> Jeff, have you ever thought about a, a movie about the drive-in? Yeah, Haunted Projector. Ooh! Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. The sprockets rip the hair out of your head, which has Ooh, happened. Yeah. They touch the wrong part to get electrocuted. Yeah. The door slams shut on their head while they're trying to thread it and it crushes their head. <laughs> it could double as a projectionist safety training video. Yes. Yeah. Because those are all things that legit could happen with our projectors. Exactly. But oh, yeah, I thought, I thought about that. The possessed projector. I like that a lot. <laughs> That's a great question. Who who submitted that one? That was Albert Mariotti. Great one, great. Albert. Great one. Great question. William Sebastian asks that musical question. Now that you have done two large events, like Keep Your Distance Tour with Bruce Campbell and Joe Bob, who would be your dream collaborator? Also, I am referring to Living But Also Curious on Dead. William Castle, as far as dead guys would, at the drive-in, would be amazing. We sort of did yeah. that. Exhumed made that a reality with Schlockerama this year in, in recreating William Castle gimmicks at the drive-in. That was probably one of my favorite nights we've ever done. Yeah. Uh, if we open it up to, to people that are dead, geez, you know, <laughs> could yeah. you imagine having Hitchcock at the, uh, at the drive-in okay. experience and what the drive-in is all about? That's the thing I really would love is, you know, bringing some of these people that truly would appreciate what we're doing. And we're very lucky with, most of the guests that we bring in, they're incredibly like-minded. They just want to be there. They just want to be a part of what we're doing. And it's a really kind of mutual love. But yeah. Elvira, Jeff and I have talked about Elvira every single year yeah. for the last couple of years. That would be a humongous get. I think that's one that our fan base would absolutely eat up. When you talk about genre fans or genre stars, we've been... Uh, so blessed to get so many incredible staple genre stars. Yes. But even looking into next year, there's there's a couple that we got that we think might uh, might be able to happen. The downside with these big events, as you guys probably know, is they're humongous investments. 
Oh, um, yeah. They're, they're also big gambles. I mean, bringing in Elvira, that's not a huge gamble. We, we could almost guarantee that would be a sellout event. But it's a big gamble in that we have to put up so much guarantee money and jump through hoops to make these really big events happen. It's really nice that we have now established the annual of the Jamboree. That's a nice, huge event. And I think maybe trying to do one more. I, I, I teased it, but like, there's one that I'm going to try to go after this year. And if you, you know me and you know the drive-in, um, it's one that I've been trying to go after for years. So hopefully we can make that happen this year. I don't know, Mark, what do you think? Is there anybody where you're like, oh, we got to get them? Some stuff we've talked about fantasizing before, John Carpenter. If we could do a Carpenter weekend, have him come out and have his band play. That would be oh, pretty amazing. Legend. The Goblin would be another one. If we could show Argento films and have, you know, Claudio Simonetti or Goblin play under the screen. I guess it's always it always ties in with something like that. Something musically related would be kind of cool. The words he used were a collaborator. Now, the, the other events like Joe Bob and... and um, Joe Bob was to a large degree, well, to a huge degree, a collaborator on that show. The Bruce Campbell was more, it was a thing he was doing and we we, you know, we and Exum built a big show around it. I like the idea of collaborating. I like the idea of guest programmer, having somebody, a director or an actor, either like like what was done to a degree with Tarantino Agogo, where we have them pick which of their films they would like to show or flat out just say, okay, Clint Eastwood is picking two of his favorite movies to show and maybe he'll send a little video that we play in front of each one as to why. Like when you have guest programmers on TCM, something like that would be really fun. Be the coolest thing ever. Sure, if you get into that where it's, you know, they don't have to physically come out to the lot, they can curate a, a night or something like that. Which, yeah, like you said, that's that's pretty much the vein that we were going into with the Tarantino night. It's probably the closest we've gotten to that type of event. Anyone, Jeff, that you're thinking where you're like, oh, my gosh, this is a must. No, because the only thing I could person I could think of is dead. Vincent Price. Oh, you just couldn't get any better than that. Unfortunately, he's been gone several years. I do love Vincent Price immensely, as does Beth, actually. So a Vincent Price weekend would be tremendous. And his daughter is very active in the fan and repertory screening community. So I'm sure if not having her come out to speak, to do a video intro or something might be really cool. Yeah. She's got a book about life with her father. That would be, a, you know, yeah. make this food special could be something from one of the Vincent Price cookbooks. I mean, there's so <laughs> the Vincent Price weekend. He, he did so much over such a long period of time between film and TV and theater and recordings. And God, I mean, yeah. he's, he does the voiceover in the thriller song. I mean, he's, he was amazing. Everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great one. Well, that's a great question. Certainly we can say we got some stuff on the back burner for next year. Right. Our whole thing is, you know, just like we've done so incredibly well over the last couple of years, just aligning ourselves with really great genre stars that the fans want to come out and meet. Even going over the calendar of this year, it's nuts. The opportunities that folks got at the Mahoning. Atreyu, leader of the squad, the the Kyoto brothers. The list goes on and on this year. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. Mmm, savory barbecue beef. Go ahead, fix a sandwich for yourself. Just look at that pure prime beef simmering in that special tangy barbecue sauce. Make a big one, like you do for the customers. Customers? Uh oh. Well, somebody got it. Have to fix yourself another. 
savory barbecued beef. There's still plenty for you at the refreshment center. Hiya, hiya, hiya! They're shrimply delicious. Hiya, hiya, hiya! You'll go for that mouth-watering, taste-tempting, meaty shrimp mixture all wrapped up in a crispy noodle jacket. It's a treat you can't beat. So come on, join the folks that are getting fresh, crispy, flavor shrimp rolls now at the snack bar. They're shrimply delicious. So Gene Moretta asks, Gene, we love Gene. Yeah. Speaking of plans that are afoot, there's some there's some talks with Gene Moretta that's going to make your uh, your wig flip when you hear him. He says, can you discuss plans you have for the off season on Patreon? Now, we did a little earlier. The idea with Patreon is in the off season will probably an amount of it will be a lot of material we gathered during the season, but we're just too busy to post a lot of pictures, a lot of videos, a lot of audio. Um, all that sort of stuff, but we may all do some, we may do more stuff like this, where we delve in and do a little writing or a little recording of m- movie talk, movie memories. And for the Simplex tier, we are going to keep doing the monthly screenings that are exclusive to the top tier, but we're going to do that streaming online. So it'll be everybody will be able to gather and watch some rare piece of video, maybe chat along, maybe discuss the films afterwards. It'll be a way for everybody to sort of still gather. The whole idea with Patreon was to keep the fun going when the when the theaters closed too, or the fun right. going for people who can't make it out. And with those virtual gatherings, people who've never been able to come out to a Simplex screening, we have Simplex members that may have never even visited the theater or live all across the country. They'll be able to be more involved. So it's going to amp up a bit and it'll be just a lot more content, a lot more history as I uncover it. And um, it'll be fun. And videos. I put it out there to Mark. I said, we'd love to do align ourselves with maybe some of these Blu-ray DVD companies and shine a light on some of the retro releases that are coming out there. Cause we're huge media collectors. Yeah. So that just seems like a nice crossover, maybe shine a light on some of our favorite Blu-ray companies and some of the goods that they got coming out in the off season that our fans would appreciate. More reviews. I'm, I'm thinking, I don't know if we talked about it here, but I want to keep doing the DJ sets. Yeah. I mean, all of us can record those at home and post them to Patreon. So instead of being out on the lot listening to us ramble and spin our favorite tunes for an hour or so, you can just do it on your computer. Oh, that would do. You'll still hear us. And it, it should not be, it shouldn't be techno- technologically difficult for us to do that at all. So we're going to stay in your ears and your eyes and your brains pretty actively, if not more so than it was when we were open. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Gene, we love you. We can't wait for next year. Yep. Gene's amazing. He currently uh, does uh, children's books, and he often will do uh, watercolor paintings of our screen or the theater while he's waiting for a movie to start. And he gave me a, just a gorgeous thing he had just created of, of our screen. So yeah, really cool guy. Okay, here's what we can all jump in on. This is and this is almost akin to something we were talking about earlier. Mistress Zeneca says, "What is the first movie you can clearly remember seeing as a tiny kid?" Wow. The very first movie? Yeah. That I remember seeing as a kid. I'm going to need a second to think about that one. No, I, I know what it is for me, but it's just way too obvious. Wizard of Oz. Oh. The first one I remember as a kid, yeah. And was that TV or yep. theatrical? No, that would have been, yeah, no, uh, that would have been TV. Mm-hmm. That would have been TV. I got, just, oh man, the first movie I ever saw in a theater that, Oh boy. That's where my memory is clearer, is theater. 
I probably saw movies on TV. I'm sure I did because the TV was always on. It's always in front of the TV. Yeah. yeah. I know what I what the, the better story is. The first movie I ever saw was Saturday Night Fever. I was. It depends. Back then, movies played for a long time. Yeah. I believe it was when it was released in 77 I saw this because I know it was the R-rated version that I saw. And my mother took me to see it at the uh, drive-in. Funny enough, my first movie was at a drive-in. That Like, wow, that just hit me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was at a drive-in. It was Saturday Night Fever when it was new. She took me because I liked the songs from it on the radio. Now, if you've seen Saturday Night Fever, it's not a movie to take a three-year-old to. No, uh, for the no. music, but it was advertised as this big fun disco movie. Um, I think it's a great movie. It's a very serious movie for the most part. And yeah. uh, it was a little traumatic. Speaking of films that scared us, you know, there was some guy falls off a bridge in the movie. <laughs> a guy yeah. who's been a fun, cool part of the gang is suddenly really sad. And for some reason, now he's dead. Um, that was a little rough for a three year old. But I, I do remember seeing that movie at the theater. I also remember seeing the rescuers in the theater, which was also 77. So yeah. someday I'll go through old newspaper listings and, and be definitive, but it was either Walt Disney's The Rescuers or at an indoor theater in my hometown, or it was um, Saturday Night Fever at the drive-in. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I'm going to say, I remember, it, it has to be theatrical. I remember seeing one of the short circuit movies in the theater. I guess it would have had to have been two because two came out in like 88, I want to say. So I would have been maybe five or six. Uh, that's not a great one. <laughs> I remember on video vividly, I think one of the first movies that scared me was Willow. I saw Willow when I was five and the like beast wolves uh, in that movie really scared the hell out of me. And then at a certain point, there was like a multi-headed dragon that they sliced the head off of. That freaked me the hell out as a kid. Ironically, I'm going to things that immediately scared me. <laughs> they make an impression. Yeah, they really do. Yeah, they do. Um, they do. Follow That Bird. I remember that was a big one in our house. Uh, the Big Bird movie, Follow That Bird. Yeah, that's a really good one, Zeneca. That is a hard one. Because, you know, there's all these, like, scattered memories of of movies when you were a kid. Yeah, that's why it's difficult for me to pick one out. Because we were going to movies before I could even yeah, really constantly. remember them. I remember yeah, probably that 88, 89 was probably like my biggest memories. I remember the, the video store was uh, was hot then and my mom loved Young Guns. So she used to watch Young Guns all the time. I knew that movie back and forth when I was literally five. But yeah, it's strange because the memories that I'm remembering are really movies that my mom would watch on a regular big i remember we would watch big she loved tom hanks in that movie so we watched that a lot yeah it's strange that i think that's probably my era that like 88 89 um when i was five ish but yeah jeff do you recall the first movie you saw on home video like a videotape well before i get to that let me mention this or i'm gonna forget i was five years old so that would have been 1963 i think the earliest movie i can remember seeing is walt disney's the gnome mobile oh did you ever hear that wow yeah that was about 1963 that starred walter brennan and it uh and i did see that at a drive-in that's like the earliest one i can remember 
besides Wizard of Oz. That's wow. the earliest one I can remember. It's it's I funny, wouldn't... you know, you think about it for so, for several generations, the earliest movie memories and earliest movie experiences would have been at the drive-in. Yeah, for the most part because it's a it was an easy place to take little kids where they could be right. contained. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. kind of misbehave if they needed to. Right, and I was always uh, very well behaved. I mean, I loved sitting in the back of the car and watching the people walk around, watch them go into the concession stand, come out again, watch the movie, watch the intermission reel. And then my dad would take me to the concession stand and I didn't care that I was in my pajamas. It just didn't register. It didn't matter. And um, those are the things I remember. And um, yeah, I would have been five years old in 63. I remember the Gnome Mobile with Walter Brent. That wow. one I remember. That's a great but, one. Uh, yeah, that, that was something else. That was something else. But on videotape, let me see the earliest movie I ever watched on videotape. And that would have been beta, by the way. My dad right. did, did not want a VHS uh, player. He wanted a beta machine because the picture was better back then. The beta machines had a much better picture. And I can remember our first beta machine because I still have it. It's in my basement. I still have it. Um, he bought that in like 82 or something like that. Uh, the first one. I'm gonna say it was one that was a couple years old. I'm gonna say the shootest, John Wayne. That was his last movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I watched that on beta videotape. Yeah. Because if you if you are of a certain age, you had multiple first experiences. You had the first first indoor movie, your first driving movie, your first uh, thing you can remember seeing on TV, but then down the road it was videotape you know it was this yeah. new thing where what was the first movie and for some people who were i guess old enough you probably do remember that first experience because it was so exciting to be able to control a film all of a sudden i mean if i mean right. you you had did you did you have 16 and 8 before that 8 millimeter had 8 so so that's you know the earliest home video so you you'd experience that but for people my age it was thrilling that it's it's a movie you watch it when you want. You can stop it. You can rewind it. You can pause it, and, and there's no commercials. It was like a yeah. big deal. Even even if you had cable or HBO, you still didn't control it. You still, you know, you had to watch it when it was on, and you, you had to sit, sit there and watch the whole thing. For me, I think the first movie I saw was on video was also beta. We were visiting my uncle Dick in Burlington, Vermont, and they had a beta machine, and we went to a video store, and I was super excited because I was a movie kid. And it was literally like a candy store. It was like, oh, I can only pick one. And mm. they had, they did say though, it has to be beta. And on the because they had both at the time, this would have been yeah. 84, 85 probably. And mm -hmm. I'd look for the smaller boxes because they had them side by side. And I rented the Night Gallery pilot TV movie. The, uh, <laughs> with the with that, wow. that cool painting of Joan Crawford on the cover. And it was you yeah. know, multiple segments and Spielberg directed a segment. It was really good because I'd always heard about it. I was a big Twilight Zone fan, but I'd never been able to see Night Gallery and I rented that. And then I think the after that, the first VHS, I think I remember my best friend getting a VCR and I remember him renting Brewster's Millions. And I think we went over, I went over to his house and I watched that like they had it for a day or two. So it, it was exciting that you could watch it over and over again. So I, I'm pretty sure it was that. That's neat. That is neat. Yeah, we're we're definitely products of the home video era. You know, that was the greatest thing. Yeah, like 77 on. I remember in my childhood, I don't know if your parents did this, but my mom would tape 
everything. It's like when she discovered the technology of recording off of cable, it was like we had everything and it was all filed and we had big old uh, uh, books that, you know, she used to log them in. Oh, I did the like same thing. Had everything. For me, my, my parents didn't care. They were just cool with whatever was on TV. But me, I wanted the access to that library of the multiple video stores we had in town. And all these movies that I always read about, I had all these books about movies. I had the Psychotronic Encyclopedia of Film and the Leonard Malton books and this Talkies book that my father had. And all these movies I'd only ever read about or seen pictures of, and suddenly I could watch them all. So it was it was insane. I mean, if if you had lived in a bigger city, you still probably had theaters that played these things in repertory. But where I lived, that was just not going to happen. Aside from Disney reissuing movies every so many years. But even by then, by the time I got a VCR around 87, I don't think they were really doing much in the way of the reissues anymore. I think it petered out around that time um, because I remember seeing Cinderella and Pinocchio and all that stuff in theaters as a kid. But I feel like as you got to the late 80s, they, they sort of re, reignited their animation division with Little Mermaid and stuff. And then reissues tended to, they focused on video for that stuff instead of theaters. Yeah, and it made sense. I remember uh, videotapes being so expensive. You know, oh, it yeah. Like, it was like 70 bucks for a, a freaking VHS tape. <laughs> I can remember even, even back when they were selling uh, beta pre-recorded videotapes in the stores. They were 80 bucks. Unbelievable. A piece. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy to think about. Now you can you can't give them away sometimes. Uh as yeah. we can attest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was a great question. Anytime we can jump into uh the Wayback Machine. I love that. Behind the blazing eyes of X, you will see demon forces that seek to probe the scientific unknown. Beware. Beware the stare of X. 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 One CC under the right lid, one CC under the left. Suddenly he possessed X-ray vision, power to see through clothes, flesh, walls, to the very ends of the universe. X, a fantastic adventure into the unknown, starring Ray Milland in his most challenging role since his Academy Award winning Lost Weekend. X, the motion picture with a theme so unique it could only be called X, filmed in Pathé Color and Spectorama. X, the man with the X-ray eyes, is the different picture this year from American International. You won't ever forget it. X, X. John Dahl, not the director of The Last Seduction, says, mixture of question and suggestion. How do you think about potential events when they step out of the retro 35 millimeter both branding? Do the connections back to that, such as new trauma screenings relating heavily to their iconic 80s run play a major role? What about genre? Something like Black Dynamite, Outlaw Johnny Black double feature would be really cool, but does that stray too far from the Mahoning vision? He's basically saying... Um, how do we feel about showing stuff that's either not on film or not old? Hmm. Well, we've dipped our toe into the not old. I think if yeah. it's the right title, we've done It, the new It. We've right. done Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which makes total right. sense. Both of those were on 35. Um, so we do dip into the modern. And we've been talking about you know modern classics, ones that even are certainly on 35 millimeters still. But... I think you tapped into something else there with the black exploitation, where there's a lot of events that we want to do 
that unfortunately they're just too much of a gamble. We don't think that we're going to pull the Mahoning audience out in droves uh, to come and see, which we've seen in the past. I was talking to Harry not to spill the beans on next year, but I know he really wants to do a very action heavy uh, weekend, which is against the norm for him, at least at the Mahoning, because horror crushes for Harry. Right. Um, but we tried that in 2016, 17 with our tough guy weekend. And that lineup was killer. You had so many different um, variations of, of action stars in that lineup and nobody came. And I think since then it's been this thing of like, ah, we could try, could, could a Kung Fu night work? Ah, probably, but will it do well enough? You know? So that's what I think the bigger issue is, is, you know, obviously we don't want to show anything that's not on 35. When we do our bookings, if it's not available on 35, it's pretty much not for us. But, right. um, you know, as far as spreading our wings into different, more eclectic genres, hell yeah, we want to do that. But as far as a business model, we just don't know how lucrative that would be. I think I think we're eventually going to try just about everything. But like with Gangster Night, I thought that was really neat because we had James Cagney and White Heat and we had uh, a couple of others that were, oh, um, Edward G. Robinson in uh, Little Caesar yeah, and just classic gangster movies. And it didn't do that well. And I've always wanted to try it again one of these years, but it's like Virgil said, and I make out the bills. Let me tell you, you have no idea the overhead that comes with this drive-in. And it's because we put on all these great events. I don't mind, you know, spending the money one bit, but we've got to be able to get it back because that's our only resource. Um, we appreciate whenever, whenever anybody makes a donation to us or something like that, we are very, very grateful. But the business has to support itself. And the overhead when we do special events like Joe Bob, et cetera, et cetera, or have a star come in, um, the overhead is immense. Not only do we have to pay the bills, but then we have to make something on top of it. And sometimes that's a little tough. So if something doesn't do well, like a gangster night, or like uh, when Virgil says we're toying with a Kung Fu night, it's because we're just not quite sure that it's going to work. But I think eventually we will try just about anything you know, down the road. Yeah, when we get more comfortable, we dream about those nights that we can really, you know, cut loose, try something out, you know, and yeah, not not have to go in with uh, such a worry, which, you know, we know those days are coming. But yeah. for sure, I've got to give a shout out to John, too. John has been uh, such a loyal uh, Patreon, beyond Patreon member, loyal member of the family. He's been at the theater so often this year and even jumped on the uh, the mic and did a DJ set for us. So, John, you rock. And he created some amazing Patreon Simplex member exclusive buttons for our screenings that we hand out to all, every new member who shows up at one of those screenings based on something that's become a cult favorite as part of the pre-show, which we won't talk about. You got to be there. You got to be there. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, John's uh, super cool. When we when we did uh, a Kung Fu movie for one of the Patreon screenings, he brought in this huge bag of martial arts DVDs for us to give away as door prizes, which is super, super generous of him. He rocks. And Mark, you didn't, you don't know it, but he dropped off a bag of patches that it says the Mahoning 35ers, almost like what? the San Francisco 49ers. He has... 
on the top, the, the logo on it, which is genius. It says born outsider, drive insider. Oh, so good. Great. <laughs> yeah, they're beautiful. It's going to so, make me buy a sure, denim jacket. Sure the fans are going to be wanting that too, you know? Yeah. Well, we love when you guys submit the questions. Again, it's it's a great way to get involved. I think that's going to do it for us this week. We're going to be back with you guys. It's very possible the season will be over by then. So if hopefully this comes out before our last weekend, if you guys can make it out, please come out and give us some love. Say goodbye. The off season, it's bittersweet. Jeff puts it perfectly. We need it. It's essential, but it always is a bummer. For me, it's it's the hard part is going from an ultra social life to pretty much a little social activity in the off season. You just, uh, you're used to seeing your friends every day and then that shifts a little bit, but we're going to do our best yeah. to uh, stay in contact and keep the coals burning. We'll just have that everybody is- on the podcast in the off season. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that is the tough part is uh, kind of leaving your friends behind. I mean, you can get together for dinner now and then, but it's not the same as having the drive in open, but yeah. Believe me, Virgil, Mark, myself, we stay together during the winter and we figure out next year. That's one of the most important parts about the off season. Not only do we get a little rest, but we're constantly getting ready for next year. So even though we're relaxing, we're still busy. Right, guys? Absolutely. Yeah. That, that'll be the plus is, you know, you guys will get maybe uh, two months of downtime and then come January, we're going to be booking again and probably releasing events come February. So it's it all revs up pretty quickly. And, you know, again, you guys have a lot to look forward to uh, with the plans that we got. So yeah, we're excited. Um, yep. So if you guys are not in the know, check us out, MahoningDIT.com for all the dates, deets, and tickets. Again, can't say enough about the Patreon. And hopefully we see you guys out on the, the lot before the end of the season. But if not, much love to all you guys. And I think on that note, Jeff, take it away, my friend. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks again for coming out tonight to the Mahoning Drive-In Theater. We hope you'll come back and see us again real soon. The exit is on the right-hand side of the screen at the front of the field, and most importantly, have a very safe trip home. Good night, and God bless you.